And we'll begin this evening's talk with a brief overall exploration of the paramis. And then uh, we'll move on towards looking more deeply into the parami of generosity. Exploring the giving and the receiving of that that's inherent in this beautiful, essential quality of the heart, quality of the mind. So the paramis, the forces of purity within the mind, forces of purity within the heart, the accumulated forces of purity, Every mind moment that's clear, that's free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion, has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each of us in our long evolutionary process, we could call it, has accumulated many, many of these forces of purity within our own mind and heart. One of the roots of the Pali word parami conveys a sense of supreme quality. And in Sanskrit, the word paramita means going toward, going towards something. So going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. Sometimes the word uh, parami is translated just simply as perfection or the perfections, the paramis. And in Theravada Buddhism there are ten uh, paramis to be developed. And I'll say them uh, the word in Pali and then in English. Dana, generosity. Sila, virtue. Nekama, renunciation. Panya, wisdom. Virya, energy or effort. Kanti, patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, which is um, resolve or determination, and metta, loving kindness, and upeka, equanimity. As each of these qualities, as they grow, as they strengthen, and as they mature within us, the accumulation of the qualities of non-greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience, and non-hatred, which are loving-kindness, truthfulness, and virtue, and the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort, or energy, resolve, and equanimity. These qualities, these paramis, the perfections, become very forceful as a result, 
and, and they result in many, many different forms of happiness. Forms, different forms of contentment. And the sense that comes, the sense of ease that comes with a very uh, developing and deepening sense of well-being. And all of this in relationship to the most basic worldly sensual pleasures, all the way through to the highest, most refined happiness of the awakened, the liberated, uh, enlightened mind, the enlightened heart. The development, the growth, and the maturation of these perfections, these qualities, these capacities, we could call them, these forces of the mind, forces of the heart, help to counter the forces that cause human beings such great suffering. As we've explored in practice and as we've talked about, everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly, nothing occurs accidentally. The practices that lead towards these qualities in our lives, these perfections, They really aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important. And many of them we've talked about over this past month. They're very much a real practice, we could say. This aspect of training the mind is really uh, an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our practice towards moving, uh, moving towards liberation. And as these qualities grow, as they deepen, and as they get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, all of the qualities of the heart of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis could be understood uh, in, as being in two basic, of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, the purity of action, our way of being in the world, conduct in everyday worldly aspects. And these paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort or energy in meditation practice, and truthfulness, and resolve, resolve in this case, resolve to practice. The second basic aspect of the paramis are related to the purity of wisdom, the purity of understanding, insight. And again, in relationship to everyday worldly life. And the wisdom, the understanding, the insight of the very deepest liberating kind. 
the wisdom of absolute truth, the wisdom of insight into the nature of things. This second aspect of the perfections includes the paramis of wisdom, panya, patience, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are very interrelated. And so, because of that, they bring each other to light over and over and over again. The development of these forces of purity in the mind are also an important aspect of the very foundation for the attainment of liberation. The attainment of freedom to whatever degree is in part the perfectly natural result of the development of these very strong powers of purity in the mind and heart. We could say that the development, refinement, and the eventual attainment of the paramis is the fulfillment of the cause to gain the Dhamma. And as has been mentioned a number of times in this retreat by both Sayadaw and myself, practice itself, in its process, is the practice and the process of purification. The path of practice that leads one towards liberation, samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight, and other specific practices such as the Brahma-vihara practices, metta, loving-kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative, empathetic joy, and upekka, equanimity. All of it's part of the path of purification. And so the development of the paramis quite organically, quite naturally occurs within the context of these practices. In light of moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world, and considering that everyday life can be really quite a potent aspect of one's practice, bringing the paramis more and more into the forefront of one's daily life can be quite helpful and quite fruitful. The paramis are, of course, to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and potential purification or perfection of the, these qualities of mind and heart is that there's something to work towards, something to practice towards, to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest. The mind, the heart, liberated from all self-centered concern. So no greed, no hatred, no delusion. 
which of course without a doubt is of great benefit for everyone oneself included the word parami used in relationship to a particular person or persons is meant as one who does wholesome deeds with a very pure and genuine motivation to help others and to help themselves so as in practicing the dhamma to gain liberation and we move towards this little by little by little through our practice as we practice the dhamma to gain liberation it's quite okay and actually necessary to have self-interest wholesome self-interest in pursuing uh, the dhamma this way as i think everyone here understands there's no harm at all done in relationship to others and there's a beautiful way that this is it's beautiful and simple way that this is said traditionally traditionally it's said that the practice development and gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of noble persons And so now uh, moving into a more extensive exploration of the parami of generosity and beginning with a story. Some years ago when I was living and teaching at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace Pagoda Temple. uh which isn't very far from the insight meditation society and i'd go there to pay a visit to my friend a venerable mahagosananda and some of you may know of him or maybe even knew him his name translates as maha which means great and gosananda the sound of bliss maha as he was fondly called uh was from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism and he's probably best known throughout the world for the Dhamma Yatras uh the long step by step walks for peace that he led through the Cambodian countryside through the villages and refugee camps during and after the Vietnam war Maha died some years ago now at approximately the age of 94 and he'd been a monk for 80 years venerable gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being to me he felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that i'd ever encountered so simple so unpretentious 
so rare, really. A being with a truly unfettered heart, unfettered mind and unfettered heart, and a pure heart and a pure mind. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and great joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, uh, a sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. The evening before the retreat was to begin, I was taken into his quarters to say hello. We really didn't know each other very well. And, in fact, we hadn't seen each other uh, for about a year. And so I didn't know if he would remember me. Being such an old man, uh, at that point, there were a number of things that he didn't remember. So when we uh, met that evening, I recalled to him the last time we had met, the previous time we had met, and asked him if he remembered me. And he looked at me and he said, Oh yes, I remember your nose. (laughs) And just as we all did right now, I burst out laughing. (laughs) And I said, Well, it must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he said very directly and very sweetly, he said, he responded, he said, It's a good nose. During a three-month retreat uh, that I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society not too long after this Colorado retreat, I visited uh, Venerable Gosananda at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather who uh, used to call me Mum. <laughs> and so at one point I was kind of puzzled by that and at one point I asked him why he called me Mum when in fact he was so much older than I was. (laughs) And his response was that we've all been each other's mothers at some some point. And so you're mom. (laughs) So that day, mom and grandfather uh, sat together and drank tea, and we laughed a little bit, talked a little bit of history about Venerable uh, Gosananda's life, We talked about the three-month retreat uh, that I was co-teaching and how everyone was so diligently practicing. But mostly we talked Buddha Dhamma, which of course was Venerable's most favorite topic. Being with Venerable Gosananda was always a most precious gift. A gift that opened the enlightened the mind, open enlightened the heart. A gift that he so selflessly offered through his being. Or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered by just simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and then afterwards my heart felt like it filled up my whole body, filled up my whole being, and then would go on outward. And an experience that would always continue for quite some time after our times together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, 
to my total surprise, the uh, two monks and the uh, and one of the nuns that was living there with Maha filled were filling the back seat of my car <clears throat> with large bags of uh, of Thai rice and big tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar. All of it for me to take back uh, to the three-month retreat yogis. They wanted to offer gifts, they said, uh, to support, gifts of support, because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago. When Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation from suffering. And it's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that we all are sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a fairly recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays a number of paramis, in particular generosity, along with virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular telling of the, uh, of the uh, story that I'm going to offer is adapted from the tale as told by uh, Rafe Martin. It's said that many Mahakalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amaravati in India and offer an evening of public talks revealing the Dhamma. The villagers were very excited and felt deeply honored. And so to show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk on through the village and then cover it with some fine cloth. In the forest just outside this village of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and a great deal of virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later lifetime was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha, we could say. Sumedha's parents, uh, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a few years before and had left him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. And it's said that young Sumedha thought My family has amassed much wealth, 
Yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take any of it with them upon leaving this world. So what's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world, should I just remain idle? No, Sumaya said or thought. No, I will leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. And so he announced his intention to the king, and he gave up all of his money uh, to the poor, and entered into the forest life of a hermit, eating wild fruit and wearing clothes of bark and letting his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. Within a short time, he gained profound insight into the true nature of things. And he bore a bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day of Dipankara Buddha's visit to the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the town. And it's said that, uh, seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha, the workman replied, Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Well, as you can imagine, Sumedha's heart leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare beyond all comprehending is it to meet such a fully realized one. And so he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the workman on, uh, with the road. And he picked a particularly swampy uh, stretch of low ground to fill. And he worked with his heart and with his mind, just filled with light and joy, repeating over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed into the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching the village. It's said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending from the Buddha Dupankara and a great a soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So, Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground. 
and then he lay down on top of it and loosening and spreading his very long matted hair he made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud and then he thought like the Buddha Dipankara I want to help all beings I'm determined despite all of the difficulties and the danger I'll never turn back I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings the next moment the Buddha Dipankara arrived at that spot and looking down at the hermit Sumedha he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha he'll be successful in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now he'll become a fully realized one an awakened one a Buddha and his name will be Gautama and out loud surrounded by hundreds of people monks, nuns, laywomen, men and children the Buddha Dipankara stated in many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow he'll be a Buddha named Gautama and when he becomes a young man he'll see the four signs old age, sickness, death and a monk and he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths after great exertions and near death he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice and then with renewed strength and energy he'll go to the foot of a bow tree sit himself down and continuing his effort with great diligence he'll attain supreme Buddhahood well as you can imagine Sumedha lying there in the mud <laughs> became delirious with joy my deepest wish shall be attained I shall be a Buddha he thought and so the next moment the hermit Sumedha put his palms together honoring the Buddha Dipankara who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta and then the Buddha Dipankara continued on his way through the village accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life the Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity filled with joy and great strength of purpose and it's said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing very hard and very diligently towards his goal generosity generosity deepening as a quality of being generosity is a practice I think mostly we think of it as a practice of offering but in its fullness it's really both offering and receiving a process which 
very clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness that's engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the heart quality of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed and clinging, stinginess, hoarding, saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and the energies of resistance. Generosity is a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer, we give help, and we receive the seamless circle of generosity. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and deeply practiced and cultivated and manifested generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways. No matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. Many years ago, I was weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning. And my four-and-a-half-year-old son, who's now about to be 47, (laughs) my four-and-a-half-year-old son wandered over to my work area with a very big and very bright smile on his face, he thrusted a bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. And I received them with great delight and heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China on my 46th birthday. And the friend that I was uh, traveling with and I were were staying in Shanghai in a a two-room apartment with a Chinese family uh, who were good friends uh, of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of this family had been admiring my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I'd learned that in China the custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So, in the midst of experiencing some degree of attachment, I decided to give this bracelet, uh, give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday. <laughs> Though feeling a kind of like a one-handed uh, giver during my consideration of doing this. And then finally deciding to do it. When the time came to actually give her the gift, it was with both hands so to say, and with an open heart. At that point it was really uh, a joy, uh, though the process uh, of getting there was very, very much a practice of generosity for me. A very dear friend of mine waited for some years for all of the conditions to come together in her life to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. 
And finally, they do. All the conditions come together. But about one week before the retreat begins, she called me to tell me that she'd given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked her if she might consider being her caretaker, which she did do. A young cab driver and I in Thailand have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm about to get out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved teacher off the uh, dashboard of his car and gives it to me. And I hesitate. I hesitate momentarily, just not really sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then I relax and my heart just simply opens and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family members. And there are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets in the circle close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. And another voice calls, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. And the child is led out of the circle to share the food and the drink with the hungry and the thirsty and to share the blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, actually, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity in the Iroquois tradition. A number of summers ago, <clears throat> forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area here in New Mexico, not, not very far south of Taos. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. We were told that the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. And I know that all of you here are very aware of the various hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis that have happened, have occurred all over the world in recent years. And the incredible outpouring of generosity offered by so many and in so many ways, people to people, person to person, At some point along the way of your life, 
along the way of your practice, you decided that you wanted to come and sit this retreat. And all of the conditions came together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and you receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings day by day by day as your retreat unfolds. And maybe at times during this retreat you're moving ever so slowly and you don't feel pushed, you don't feel hurried by anyone to speed up. So another gift given, another gift received. Just for a moment, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning holding a large bowl of food and a line of saffron-robed monks are moving slowly, gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. And as they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. And imagine yourself as a child standing with your mother or your father or an older sister or an older brother and seeing this ritual, seeing this offering every morning, taking in the power every morning of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice, taking in the joy and genuine happiness that's really quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a very natural part of life. The Buddha taught, if you knew what I knew about generosity, you wouldn't let one opportunity go by without sharing. The Buddha and his monks and nuns all lived in the same simple way. Making alms rounds each day for their sustenance, as still happens. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his Sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. So giving and receiving, this seamless circle of generosity, the practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience that I've just described, this reminder, we could say. The monastic training of the begging bowl. It isn't easily available in this country 
which at least in part is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, the cultivation of gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence. The interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. Nor do we, as in this country, in this culture, nor do we regularly engage from the other side in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reaping the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. This particular retreat has been quite special and unusual in this regard with so many, many meals so generously offered uh, as dana from many of you and from various friends of the Mountain Hermitage. And of course, along with the direct offering each day of meals to our two monastics. But as it is for the most part, our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and to accumulate, and then to fixate and to cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas, opinions, and views the ideas, opinions, and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then in turn, we're deeply conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations, material and otherwise, to think, feel, and project that this is who we are. In light of this pervasive and very sticky conditioning, I think that it takes quite a courage to enter into a spiritual practice that encourages us towards seeing, knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things, underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment and clinging and identification. And in this light, I'd like to share a poem uh, by a woman uh, named Naomi Shehab Nye. This poem was written in Colombia in 1978. And she calls it kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. 
Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindest kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches us, that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential emptiness of all accumulation. And I think as a culture, there's a deep, quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, of compassion, and of joy. It's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, the mind, the heart, learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to the everyday mundane world, what we think is ours today certainly may be gone tomorrow or may seemingly belong to someone else, maybe next week. Maybe even in this retreat this has happened. Although you seem to be pretty set in your places, sometimes it's not so. My spot in the meditation hall disappears. My seat in the dining room might not be there the next meal. Somebody else might be in it. My walking path taken. What in this world really belongs to us? What can we really possess? Is there anything, anything that really has any very hard and fast owners? Everything, everything changes hands or just simply dissolves. And when we begin to really touch this truth, it can be a very powerful factor that inclines us towards cultivating what we could call our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, 
compassion, concentration, mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioning, through the training of accumulating and then fixing on and identifying with it all. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held onto in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is the act of giving itself. Traditionally in Buddhist teachings, there are three kinds of giving that are spoken of. There's what we could call beggarly giving. And this is when we give with one hand, so to say, still holding uh, maybe tightly on to what we give. It's still mine. Really how I first began towards uh, giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet for my birthday. In this kind of giving, we, we might give the least of what we have. And afterwards, we might even wonder whether we should have given anything at all. And we've all had that experience in our life. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly with both hands. We share what we have. Because it feels quite natural and appropriate to do so. It's, it's a clear giving. And then there's what is called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. And we give instinctively with this, this way. We give graciously. We, in fact, know ourselves to be only temporary caretakers of whatever's been provided. We know ourselves as in the truth of owning nothing. In this, there's no giving, we could say. There's just the spaciousness that allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. And in relationship to this, I'd like to read a very short, I'm not sure if it's a poem, but I'll call it a poem, by Shantideva, who is an 8th century Buddhist monk. And these are his words. Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. We should keep doing that. Good idea. 
wonderful metaphor for this is it's a, used in Buddhist teachings is the moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in every drop of water on this earth and the moon doesn't demand if you open to me I'll do you a favor and shine on you the moon just shines the point is not to want to benefit anyone or to try to make them happy and there's no audience involved there's no one to impress to please to show there's no me no you no them it's really a matter of an open gift complete generosity without the relative notions of giving and receiving there's nothing to be held on to in this knowing of the perfectly natural empty flow of life an understanding as the understanding of the way of things grows the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms and some words from Desmond Tutu from South Africa Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English we call it ubuntu boto it means the essence of being human you know when it is there and when it's absent it speaks about humanness gentleness generosity hospitality putting yourself out on the behalf of others being vulnerable it embraces compassion and toughness it recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together and as we all well know we don't always live with the purity and the completeness of queenly or kingly generosity i think at least in part is one of the reasons why we practice something that i think is important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves to honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way and not to pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or by acting out of some idealized image that you might have of a generous compassionate loving person I think it's important to recognize honor and respect your limits along the way and really come from a genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think we're acting out of generosity when in fact we may be acting out of fear of loss or fear of disappointment or disapproval, fear of disapproval. not disappointment actually disapproval 
or fear of some degree of, of maybe a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or we may be giving, uh, thinking it's generosity from the place of trying to avoid directly dealing with someone or directly dealing with a certain situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear, perpetuates delusion. It strengthens the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection which causes continued suffering in ourself and maybe in another person as well. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection with others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not-self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness, the strength of abundance, this should be respected. It needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving and sharing may be done with a subtle or maybe unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the condition, from the learned feelings of lack, there may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We may give ourself away or lose ourself in an unhealthy way in what seems like generous support but which may actually be unskillful giving unskillful support of others and when this happens we actually feel less whole we feel more depleted we feel weaker which is often accompanied by a lack of awareness of or an ignorance of the real the real needs of others along with a lack of awareness of our own needs it's important to understand respect and honor in ourself and in others that the wisdom of deep and true compassionate generosity develops and matures gradually wholesome states of mind and one's heartful capacities manifest more and more and more often as we continue to practice quite naturally In relationship to this on the scale of work in the world, Thomas Merton said this. He said, To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. 
And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. And some um, thoughts and a practice uh, in regard to generosity from another perspective. There's a practice that a Tibetan teacher told me about a very basic practice uh, for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble um, giving even to themselves and may not be able to ask uh, for help or receive it graciously if it's offered. Receiving help, receiving gifts, receiving praise, receiving love can be difficult for people like this. They may not have the open-heartedness to give or receive with gratitude, joy, appreciation, kindness, even if they're physically sick or distressed emotionally. So the practice, I was told, is uh, to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as particularly valuable, something like a potato or a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand, and you keep passing it back and forth from hand to hand to hand to hand until it gets easy. And then I was told there are the higher practices. (laughs) If one is motivated, if one is inclined to continue the practice of generosity, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, into relinquishing, into offering everything all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas and beliefs, etc. And one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings, whatever they might be. And the practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels, that are symbolically offered over and over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. And at one point, many years ago, I did this practice, this last phase of this practice. But instead of uh, precious jewels, uh, the big mound was of rice. It was rice. 
which actually felt quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing in our practice without all of the paraphernalia. We're learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control and receiving what's given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. With the trust that it's just right. Just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and an open heart and with a clear, focused, mindful awareness, receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, appreciation, humility, and equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we're learning to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated, focused, mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through our body, to any task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. Like the Bodhisattva Sumedha, who with such dedication and open-heartedness practiced and learned, we're also, we too are learning to receive life fully. Be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life is the path. This very life is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. We, too, are learning that this very life is our path to liberation and that our liberation is intimately connected to the, the development of a deep generosity of the heart. And I'd like to uh, offer a a portion of a poem by uh, the Buddhist poet W.S. Merwin that he calls Gift. I have to trust what was given to me if I am to trust anything. It led the stars over the shadowless mountain. What does it not remember in its night and silence? What does it not hope, knowing itself, no child of time? What did it not begin What will it not end? I have to hold it up in my hands as my ribs hold up my heart. I have to let it open its wings and fly among the gifts of the unknown. Again in the mountain, I have to turn to the morning. I must be led by what was given to me as the streams are led by it and braiding flights of birds, the gropings of veins, the learning of plants, the thankful days, breath, by breath.
someone once asked Gandhi, who many people think is a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi responded, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help, we give to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and to live it quite naturally as who we are. I'd like to close this evening's talk with one more story. It's a long talk. Um, About 26 years ago, uh, along with my interest in Buddhism, actually it's a little more than 26 years ago now, uh, I had a Native American teacher whose name was Wallace Black Elk. (coughs) And in those years he would come once or twice a year to the area in Michigan where I lived. He'd come to teach us. One particular year I invited him uh, to come and stay uh, in my house which was a a very small, um, old five-room log house, the one that uh, burned down that I'd mentioned in in an earlier talk, which was out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, two of us, just one of my sons and I, were living there. The summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came, and an old... uh, very well-used, smallish car pulled up into the driveway. And Wallace uh, was the first one to get out. And he's quite a, quite a big man. He's six foot, three or four inches tall and very big boned. And he looked even bigger uh, in his cowboy boots and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was like one of those um, cars that come pull into the center ring in the circus. And the car pulls up, and uh, the doors open, and people just keep getting out of it. More and more and more people keep getting out of it. And you're amazed at how many people can fit into such a small car. (laughs) So as my son and I watched, seven people emerged from this little car. (laughs) All of Wallace's helpers and uh, some members of his family. And it turned out that there were 11 people living in our house during that 10-day period. (laughs) And my thoughts were, at the very start of this, how will we all live? How will we all sleep in this tiny little house? Well, the space just seemed to expand. People were sleeping everywhere, all over the place. And food arrived. People would stop by in the afternoon uh, to meet, uh, to meet with and to listen to Wallace as he talked uh, and shared his earth wisdom. And at night, Wallace and his extended family led ceremonies and practices in the sweat lodge that was down the road at the ecology center. Usually until about 1230, 
uh, a.m. And then it was time for a big dinner at 12.30 a.m. Because there were no meals. They, did, they weren't on eight precepts. We were not on eight precepts. There were no meals uh, taken through the afternoon and evening before the sweat lodge ceremonies. But after the sweat lodge ceremony was dinner time. During these ten days, I had to let go of many of my preferences, many of my habits, how I use the various spaces in my house and my usual schedule and the rhythm of my life, my food preferences and other preferences. Wallace and one of the other members of his family uh, continuously smoked cigarettes in my no-smoking house. (laughs) We couldn't ask them to be outside to smoke because they would never have hardly been able to be in the house. And as I mentioned, people slept all over the house. The day began quite late, uh, late in the morning because of the late night sweat lodge ceremonies in the 1 a.m. dinner time. And every afternoon the house was filled with people. Sometimes 15 or 20 people would come to listen to Wallace as he shared his teachings in a very uh, casual, conversational way. And somehow there was always enough food. We'd come back from the sweats and there were bowls of food at the door and some left on the kitchen counter. And often a friend and I would be cooking up something at about 12 or 1 in the morning, 12 at night or 1 in the morning, for our main uh, uh, meal of, this, of the day. Amazingly enough, there was always plenty of food and always enough space. The last night of this 10 days, Wallace and friends said that they wanted to do a ceremony, a gratitude ceremony in our living room for my son and I. And so we all sat together in a circle, and each one of us was asked to offer some words from our heart in relationship to our 10 days together. And then they gave my son and I beautiful treasures, gifts that they'd brought with them. And they gave it, gave it to us in gratitude for our sharing our space and our time and our energy with them. And then Wallace spoke and he said, if one shares from the heart, shares material possessions, there will always be enough, abundance, he said. And he went on, if one shares one's place and time and energy, one's space and time and energy, he said, It's an open-ended flow. There's no boundary, no frame on what's available in these areas. And then he went on to say, if one shares from the heart, it's in this that one receives everything. Simply in the giving, there's abundance. The next uh, day, when everyone left, in seeing them off, my son and I stood outside watching them all get back into the old car. It was kind of like a movie playing backwards, you know. And then the two of us, my son and I, walked uh, back into the house and stood there in amazement. The 
seeming great expanse of our house, holding all of the people, all of the activity, all of the energy for all of those days. When we walked back inside after everyone had left, it seemed that our house had shrunk. And yet somehow, internally, we both felt expanded. The powerful medicine of generosity. And I'd like to close the talk with a quote from an astronaut, Russell Swickert, an American astronaut. And this uh, quote comes from a book that's no longer in print, but a very beautiful book of photographs that were taken by Russell Swickert and other astronauts from around the world uh, from outer space. And then there there were quotes uh, from each of them um, throughout the book. And this is Russell Swickert's words. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you out, are you separated out to be touched by God? To have some special experience that others cannot have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans or for man, as he said. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You are up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there, and that's why you are out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet. Because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference. And it's so precious. And let's just sit for quietly for just a moment or two.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.